Usain Bolt, Michael Phelps, Amelia Earhart, King Ahab of Israel. What could these four people possibly have in common? Well, each one is or was at one time a world record holder. Uh, Michael Phelps obviously swimming, Usain Bolt sprinting, Amelia Earhart uh, aviation, King Ahab evil, evil, world record holder in evil. Bible tells us about him in 1 Kings chapter 16 verse 30, it says that Ahab son of Omri did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. So congratulations, Ahab, when it comes to the Olympics of evil, you are a gold medalist. It may come then as a surprise to us that his greatest competition in the Olympics of evil was his own wife, his own helpmeet. Um, And if you're familiar much with the stories of the Bible, and probably even if you are not, her name alone is enough to send a chill up your spine. Jezebel. Jezebel. Um, She grew up in Sidon as a Baal worshiper, as a worshiper of pagan gods, just like her ancestors had been. And apparently, she was a truly devoted follower of those religions. Because when she moved into the palace of Israel, when she moved into governance of Israel, she set about to destroy the religion of Israel, set about to destroy Yahweh worship. One of her campaigns was a sort of final solution to Yahweh worship. In a Gestapo-style campaign of persecution and murder, she set about to kill all of the prophets of God. That was her agenda. Together, Ahab and Jezebel made quite a team. In terms of dancing with the devil, they were... They were Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. They were evil. 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 25 says this. Ahab, 1 Kings 21, 25. Ahab, pushed by his wife Jezebel, and in open defiance of God, this is from the message, set an all-time record in making Big business of evil. I want you to remember that as we work through the text this morning. Set an all-time record in the big business of evil. As a friend of mine said this week, Gary Cohorn, when we were preparing this week, and I told him, Gary, I'm going to preach this Sunday about Ahab and Jezebel. Gary said, that ought to make everyone feel a lot better about themselves. Because honestly, when I compare myself to them, When most anybody compares themselves to these two people, we come out smelling like a rose. We really do. Under this royal couple, Yahweh worship was attacked, prophets were murdered, 
Temples and shrines to pagan gods were erected in the heart of Israel. And during their administration, people were merely objects to be used. They leveraged all of their power, all of their influence, all of their other leadership circles to make sure that all of their whims, that all of their desires were fulfilled. After all, what's power worth if you don't use it for yourself? That was the idea they had. These could have been their last words. Perhaps in some apocryphal text, these last words are recorded. I think if if they had any last words together, they could have said, chaos, panic, disorder, our work here is done. Because that's how they left the nation they ruled. On behalf of the God they rejected, on behalf of the God they cursed, the prophet Elijah was called to announce truth. 1 Kings 21, 20 to 21, Elijah says to them, I have come because you have sold yourself to what is evil in the Lord's sight. So now the Lord says, I will bring disaster on you and consume you. Another prophet, Micaiah, delivered a similar oracle from the Lord. He said in 1 Kings 22, 23, he said, the Lord has decreed disaster. For you. So God speaks clearly on the subject of the end of Ahab and Jezebel. Disaster is what is coming down the pike. They are earmarked for destruction. And if there is any single episode, any single event in the lives of, the, of this royal couple that illustrates the extent of their depravity, it must be the Naboth affair. Naboth was a simple fellow, he had one thing that mattered to him, and it mattered a great deal to him. That was his, his vineyard in the lush Jezreel Valley. While, while much of Israel may look brown and dry, the Jezreel Valley was, and still is, where the agricultural production of the region is. It is the, the fertile crescent of Israel, if you will. He is right there in the middle of the Jezreel Valley. He has a beautiful vineyard that has been in his family for generations. Really, there was only one problem with his vineyard. <laughs> yeah, Ahab wanted it. Ahab wanted it. I'm no expert vintner. I don't know much about wine making or wine drinking for that matter. But I know this. I know that it takes a long, long time to get those vines just right. The soil, the vines, the cutting, the trimming, the years and years. And finally you get to where you have some good-tasting wine, and that's what Naboth had, a beautiful and productive vineyard. The vineyard was located near Ahab's palace. The king's plan was to pay for it, was to make a reasonable offer to buy it and to convert it into his own vegetable garden. That was his plan. So the king, think about this, the king personally doesn't send a messenger, the king personally goes to Naboth and, and makes his pitch, makes his proposal. 1 Kings 21 verse 2, Since your vineyard, Naboth, is so convenient to my palace, I would like to buy it. I would like to use it as a vegetable garden. I will give you a better vineyard in exchange, or if you prefer, I'll just give you cash. Just pay for it. 
Naboth appreciates the offer, but his answer has to be no. Um, His connection to these vines is personal, is passionate. His own family roots are intermingled under the soil with the roots of those vines. He can't sell that vineyard. Ahab's response is, it tells us a lot about this man. There is no kingly poise. There is no royal dignity in his response. When he's told no to his offer to buy this vineyard, his response looks a lot like, say, a three-year-old in the line for the checkout at Walmart who is told by his mother, no, you can't have any candy right now. He pitches a fit. He throws a tantrum. Here's how the Bible describes his response in verse 4 of chapter 21. When he got home, he went to bed, stuffed his face in his pillow, and refused to eat. I want that vineyard. He won't let me have that vineyard. Jezebel sees her husband in the throes of this deep depression, and she says, don't worry, sweetums, I'll get that vineyard for you. You'll have your vineyard. The scheme now to get Naboth's vineyard will require all of the deviousness she can muster, and that is a pretty high level of deviousness. She will turn the dial on her amplifier of evil up to 11, all right? It will be a cornucopia of crime. We're going to have abuse of power. We're going to have a framing of an innocent man. We're going to have trumped up charges. We're going to have false accusations. We're going to have a wrongful execution. We're going to have false witnesses who are paid off. You're going to have it all. Good thing... um, Jezebel and Ahab didn't have any pesky morals to get in the way of this plan. Otherwise, this would be a complete non-starter. Here we go, starting in verse 8 of 1 Kings 21. We'll read 8 through 16. Here it goes. So she wrote letters. Oh yeah, forgery. Did I mention forgery? She wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, sent them to the elders and the other leaders of the town where Naboth lived. In her letters, she commanded, call the citizens together for fasting and prayer. Give Naboth a place of honor and then seat two scoundrels across from him who will accuse him of cursing God and the king. Then take him out, stone him to death. Verse 11, so the elders and other town leaders followed the instructions of Jezebel that she had written in her letters. They called for a fast. They put Naboth in a prominent place before the people. Then the two scoundrels came and sat across from him, and they accused Naboth before all the people, saying, He cursed God and the king. And so Naboth was dragged outside the town and stoned to death. The town leaders sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. When Jezebel heard the news, she said to Ahab, you know the vineyard Naboth wouldn't sell you? Well, you can have it now. He's dead. 
So Ahab immediately went down to the vineyard of Naboth to claim it. The scheme was premeditated, it was complex, and it was thoroughly wicked. The scheme was right in Jezebel's wheelhouse, wasn't it? Naboth is stoned to death. Ahab gets his garden patch. As leaders of Israel, when when I think, you know, and, and I reflect on what could have been, imagine the authority, imagine the potential this couple had leading Israel. These are God's chosen people. They were leading his ten tribes of the north. I think of all of the ways they could have, could have as, as leaders, with all of the power and resources they had, the ways they could have defended those who were weak, those who were vulnerable, those who were poor, the ways they could have honored God, the way that they could have fulfilled prophecy and made Israel a light to the nations. The potential that they had was enormous. But they reject their calling. And they serve only their desires. And step on anyone who gets in the way of fulfilling those. Their lives will end in destruction. Their their lives will end in violence. Ahab's end's a little bit better than Jezebel's. At least he dies with his soldiers. At least there is some valor in his death. But even his death is is. is, is tweaked a little bit by the fact that, that he is told by a prophet, you will be killed in battle, God is going to kill you. So he decides to, to disguise himself, takes off all of his royal robes, dresses himself like a private. They go to face the enemy. He figures he's a whole lot safer, dresses as a private, won't be singled out. But what happens is they, as, as they line up against Aram, the nation of Aram, an Aramean archer launches an arrow into the lines of Israel, and that arrow finds its mark between two sections of armor. It hits him just right. And for the rest of that long day of battle, the king of Israel slowly bleeds to death. Soon after his passing, or some time after his passing, we have Jezebel's demise. This will have no hint of dignity or honor in it. Jezebel's demise is really something. She hears that her husband's successor, Jehu, is going to be rolling into town. And so she gets herself all dolled up, gets a fancy new hairdo, puts on the makeup, decides to give him this reception. And she sits perched in this, in this window, a second or third story window, looking out. And as he comes in, a couple of the royal aides give her a little push. She goes splat in the courtyard. She is trampled by horses. She is consumed by dogs. Nasty. And I wonder, as I read this story, as I I read the description of her death, all of the detail, all of the horrific detail... It struck me this week, I don't know that there is, beside the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, I don't know that there is a death in the Bible that is described with this much detail. Why would Scripture do this? Why would God want her end described in full color? Well, certainly there's a message. 
of what happens to those who practice unrestrained wickedness. And perhaps, perhaps, there's a sense that God is saying, for your own good, don't mess with me. Well, that's Jezebel and Ahab. Their lives and their end. When it comes to their lives, 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 31 says this. Um, it says, when it came to sin, Ahab, quote, considered it trivial, right? Sin to Ahab was trivial. Now with Jezebel, I don't even know that sin rose to the level of trivial on her sinometer. I don't think she cared at all about wickedness and evil. And so I think on this story, on, on what are we learning on a Sunday morning at Preston Crest from a story like this? I mean, is there anything good about this story? Is there any redemptive message in this story? Is there anything even remotely helpful for my life in this story? Yes, there is. There certainly is. At no time does courage and goodness shine any brighter than in when courage and goodness is surrounded by depravity and wickedness. Against the black canvas of depravity, righteousness shines bright. And in the story of wickedness, that is the life and times of Ahab and Jezebel, there are two lights that shine extraordinarily bright. One of them is a man named Obadiah. One of them is a man named Elijah. Let's start with Obadiah. Obadiah actually worked for Ahab. Obadiah was on the payroll of the royal administration. Obadiah would use his position to risk his life to save the prophets that Jezebel was trying to exterminate, right? Very risky move. The Bible says this about Obadiah, 1 Kings 18, 3 to 5. Obadiah was in charge of the palace. Obadiah was a devoted follower of the Lord. Once, when Jezebel had tried to kill all of the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had hidden 100 of them in two caves. He put 50 in each cave, supplied them with food and water. Edmund Burke once said, All that is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Obadiah and people like Obadiah shine like lights in, in dangerous, dangerous times. Um, Obadiah saved prophets from Jezebel's extermination campaign. I think of Oscar Schindler, Schindler's List, who saved Jews from Nazi extermination. I think of a person like Harriet Tubman, who rescued and saved slaves from captivity and punishment at the hands of their masters. And I think about this, because of their courage, captives were set free. Because of their courage, innocent people were saved. 
But at the same time, I realize, and, and I think it, it just goes with courage, that courage is always married to risk. And it's not that courageous people live without fear. It's not like their, their fear um, system has just been turned off. It is that they face their fear. They move against their fear for the cause of something great or for the cause of people. And there are no guarantees for courageous people. No guarantees of success or safety when they stand up against evil. The prophet Elijah, like Obadiah, also risked himself. He risked himself to personally confront King Ahab. He was a, he was a God-sent thorn in Ahab's conscience. Um, Ahab, in, in chapter 18, verse 17, Ahab even gives him a nickname calls him the troubler of Israel. Elijah, the troubler of Israel. We need some troublers. We really do. We need some troublers who will speak truth to those in power, who will make those who have power uncomfortable. And Elijah did this at a time when, when everybody seemed to say yes to Jezebel and to Ahab. Remember the elders and remember the town leaders who, when presented with this crazy, crazy despicable plan, said, yes, ma'am, we'll do it. Elijah said, no. No, that's not okay. Stood up to him. Took a stand against power, and oftentimes truth-telling is a dangerous business when it involves speaking a difficult truth or an unwanted truth to someone in power. Jezebel knew what Elijah had done, speaking truth to her husband. Jezebel warned him that he was now on her list to be killed. She wanted Elijah to know that he had risen to the top of Israel's most wanted list. How did he respond? How did Elijah respond? 1 Kings 19, verse 3, surprising here perhaps to you. 1 Kings 19, 3, he responded this way. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Hang on, you know. (laughs) I thought he was courageous, you know. I thought he took a stand. What's he doing being scared? What's he doing being afraid? What's he doing running for his life? And what's going on here? Well, I think what's going on here is the truth. What's going on here is is he was a real person. He wasn't some sort of robot of God who felt no emotion, who felt no fear. He was afraid. Courageous people are not devoid of fear, you see. Courageous people just refuse to be paralyzed by it. And so, even though courageous people are afraid, they act. For Elijah acting meant, I'm going to stand before the king. I'm going to tell him what the Lord has told me to share with him. He's not going to want to hear it. Then I'm going to turn around and I'm going to run like crazy. That's what he did. Shining brightest. Obadiah, Elijah, shining brightest in this story is the brightest, greatest light of all. And that is God Almighty. Despite all of Ahab's wickedness, despite his track record of ignoring the Lord and doing whatever he wanted to do, 
God's mercy in the middle of this story comes bursting through. After the disturbing story of Ahab and Jezebel setting up Naboth for death so that they can steal his parcel of land, Elijah confronts the king and he doesn't sugarcoat his message. He says, 1 Kings 21.20, he says, King, you have sold yourself to what is evil in the Lord's sight. Ahab's response, though, Ahab's response is shocking. His response is so surprising. King Ahab felt remorse. King Ahab felt humbled and broken and called out for God's compassion. And the Lord noticed his spirit. And the Lord showed mercy to Ahab. 1 Kings 21, 27 to 29. But when Ahab heard this message, he tore his clothing, he dressed in burlap, he fasted, he even slept in burlap, and went about in deep mourning. Then another message from the Lord came to Elijah. I'm guessing Elijah didn't like this message too much. You with me? Another message came to Elijah. Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? The Lord says. Because he has done this, I will not do what I promised to do during his lifetime. Guessing that Elijah didn't appreciate that message. No, go ahead and do it, Lord, please. Let's get rid of this guy. Take care of his wife, too. But God allows Ahab to continue on his throne until his death. The wrinkle in this story that really takes my breath away is this. How can God Almighty look upon the life of the most wicked, the record-setting gold medalist, evil king of Israel, how can God look upon this life and show mercy? Be honest with you, I don't like that response. I don't like God's mercy here. I mean, my first reaction is take him out, God. We need a divine surgical strike to remove this cancer from Israel. But it's in moments like these where God shows compassion to Ahab, or where God hanging on the cross shows compassion to a criminal. It's in moments like these that God's grace is most amazing to us. And it reminds me that I must never, never, never under any circumstances choose to limit the breadth and the width of God's mercy. I mean, my tendency is to think of who deserves His mercy is to think of who deserves God's compassion and then to to think God should then mete out His compassion at appropriate levels. This is not appropriate, right? But then we'd all be lost, wouldn't we? I mean, if I got what I deserved, I'd be a goner, just like Ahab, under that system. 
And so thankfully, he shows mercy to the undeserving. He shows mercy to folks like us. Um, His grace is amazing. And if I ever try to limit God's grace, if I ever try to put a cap on God's grace, I pray that the Holy Spirit will just mention this name in my ear, just whisper, Ahab. Remember how I dealt with Ahab. The king's wickedness, look, I mean, it was, it was off the charts. It would have been reasonable for God to take him out at that point instead of letting him serve a long reign. But Ahab seeks mercy. God gives mercy. And I'm just left thinking, amazing. You know? What about you? What about you? I mean, I think there are a lot of people who feel, who feel, and because of that, think they don't deserve God's mercy. And they're like, no, 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 you, you don't get it. You don't get it. I, I really don't. I have taken so many steps away from God. I have sinned so many times. You don't know my life, really. I have gone so far away from God. His grace cannot reach me. And so many people think that way. And so refuse to embrace God's grace. So if you think you are too far gone, I've got some news for you. Really, it's, it's good news, right? Good news. Listen closely. Paul is talking to this church full of sinners. Listen closely to what Paul writes in a letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. Listen to what he says. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, whoa, that doesn't sound like a lot of grace. But then he continues. And he says, that is what some of you were. But now you're washed. You're washed Now you're sanctified, now you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So let's get this straight. There were men and women who were members of the Church of Christ in Corinth who had been personally engaged in all of the sins Paul had just listed out. But now they are washed clean by the blood of Jesus. I mean, they had a list of sins that would make Madonna blush. And God says, now you are perfect in my sight. Justified, sanctified, washed. Made right by Jesus. Made right because of his sacrifice. Now, Now, this is the deal. God's grace is not like some sort of license, right, for you to continue to ignore His will. God's grace is not some sort of of free pass for you to continue uncharted in your sinful ways. It's not, but it is a, God's grace is a cleansing 
and transforming flood over the lives of those who embrace it. It not only washes you clean, it not only gives you a fresh start, but it has a, an incredible power to morph you, to change you into the person God wants you to be. That's why God's grace is, is so amazing. All right. Well, a man named John Newton, you've heard this story before. This week, Claudia and I were talking about John Newton. I'll tell you why in just a minute. But a man named John Newton lived during the 1700s. Um, he was a man who lived most of his life very far away from God. Um, he would later be ashamed of all that he had done, um, mostly that he had been a, one of those people who had really profited, who had made a lot of money off slave trade between Africa and England. And as a captain of an English slave ship, he was an accomplice to injustice, an accomplice to torture and death. He was. Captured and transported against their will, many innocent men, women, and children would die on his ships. And perhaps that's if they were lucky. Otherwise, they were going to get sold and spend the rest of their lives as slaves. His ship would make the first leg of its journey, England to Africa, carrying goods to Africa. Those goods would then be exchanged with tribal leaders in exchange for these, these people, right? They had stolen these people in raids against other tribes, in wars against other tribes. So now they possessed these people, they sold them to John Newton, and he would carry them back to England to be sold into bondage. That is how it worked. Now, once he got them on board, he would, he would pack them in, much like you would pack a warehouse as tightly as possible. Ankles and wrists would be chained, not to prevent their escape, okay? You're not going to escape anywhere on, on a ship. Maybe you're going to mutiny or something. But really, the idea of shackling the folks was so they would not try to catapult themselves overboard. They would not try or be able to commit suicide. That, that was the idea of shackling these people down. So Newton had personally been involved in, in the bondage and agony of others. Um, many perished on board. Others got to England infected with dysentery and other diseases. And they say that the stench of those slave ships was so great, the odor was so repugnant that good folks wouldn't even come close to the docks. They'd be sickened by the smell of those ships. Like Ahab, Newton experienced remorse, experienced pain in his heart over what he had done, and his repentance was so profound that he refused any more comforts in life and chose to live his life in service for others. He eventually joined forces with William Wilberforce, who was a, a member of parliament in England, also a clergyman, and together they pushed through legislation abolishing slavery in England. But most remarkably, I don't know most remarkably, abolishing slavery was really something. Praise God for that. But very remarkably as well was the hymn that he wrote, um, Amazing Grace, that he wrote that poured out of his heart and out of the change that God had seen in his mercy, willing to give John Newton the second chance he got in life. And so... Here are the famous words of the hymn. Incidentally, Claudia and I were listening to the hymn this week, and she said, and she talked about how much she liked the hymn, and I told her a little bit of the story, and she was like, wow, that guy had been a slave trader? 
And so we actually watched a video this week on the history of the hymn. Here are the words. You know the words. Just listen and soak them in again, though. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fears, relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. His grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. God's grace was and is amazing because it was able to reach two gold medalists of evil, Ahab and John Newton. It was able to reach them. It was able to get into their hearts. And so here are some responses to this story. We're going to go really fast. This is in your bulletin this morning. Some things to write down. I'm just going to read these. These are different responses. And this is, this is between you and God, right? This isn't something anyone else can work out. This is between you and God. Here they are, some responses to this story. First one is this. Like Ahab, perhaps, or like John Newton, I need to repent of my sin. Humbly seek God's forgiveness and start over. Something in my life I need to deal with. Second thing, this would be Elijah, right? I need to have a difficult conversation with someone in a position of power where I confront their injustice. There will be risk involved. It will be a, a dangerous thing to talk to your boss or talk to your local politician or talk to, you name it, and confront evil. Third thing, I need to take a risk and make a stand for a person or a group of people who are being victimized. That's what God's calling me to do, to be an Obadiah. Take a stand for those who are being victimized. Or, the final thing, I need to give in to the grace of God and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. So this morning, is God calling you to courageous action? Is He calling you to, to give protection to, to, to work on behalf of those who are vulnerable, to those who are poor, to those who are in misery in our community or maybe in another part of the world. Is that what God is calling you to do? If it is, act on it. Maybe what God is calling you to do is to confront somebody, to humbly, lovingly, but boldly confront someone with a truth that you know will be difficult for them to hear. And if that's what God's telling you to do, act on it. Maybe this morning he's calling you to repent of a sin, to be specific and say, God, this has been going on for a long time. You know my heart on this. It makes me sad, God. May your grace not only restore me and forgive me, but may your grace and the power of the Holy Spirit change me. Or maybe this morning it's that decision to follow Jesus, to say yes to his mercy, 
to be immersed in baptism into the name of Jesus and to begin a fresh start with God.